But uh, anyway, John chapter 5. So to set this up, I'm going to, I know because last week you guys had a big worship weekend. Um, This is actually a conversation that takes place just following Jesus' healing of the man at the pool at Bethsaida. So if you guys remember, Pastor preached for a few weeks on that and God healing us and all of the all of the awesome stuff that comes with that, right? God is sovereign and we have to rely on him for healing and everything out of that. So this conversation that he now has with the religious leaders is actually the aftermath of what takes place because of that. Because these guys, these religious leaders, okay, so these would be like pastors and above, right, of the people, are angry that Jesus healed this guy because he healed him on the Sabbath, right? And apparently to them, that's working. Now, they couldn't do it, mind you, but to them, it was working. So here's where we're going to start. John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, we see this. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him, for he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So he's really gotten under their skin now, right? Not only did he break their strict Sabbath rules. Now, mind you, people have been killed for breaking the Sabbath before, right? In the Old Testament, when God gave them the rules of all this kind of stuff, a guy went out and he picked up sticks and everything, and they caught him and they stoned him for breaking the Sabbath, Okay, so we do know that breaking the Sabbath was a law in the Old Testament, in Moses, in the law of Moses, it was a crime punishable by death. But since nobody else can heal on the Sabbath, right, it's not like they were, you know, it's not like the religious leaders were walking around healing every other day of the week, and they were like, well, you know, we do whatever, you know, we wait, we would have waited till tomorrow, Jesus, you know, to heal the man. We had it, you know, no, the guy had been paralyzed for 30 years, right? They weren't, like, not healing. So here they're upset because not only does that, but he puts himself on the same level as God, right? He says, my father's always working and so am I. If you go back and we have, you know, a few, I think it was about a year ago, we did the Ten Commandments and you preached a message on the Sabbath and it's great, you can go back and look at that. And Pastor, he related that the Sabbath wasn't created for God, the Sabbath was for us, right? As a way, one, for us to rest and to refocus on God, that that's really why we have it. And Jesus actually says that. He goes, listen, the Sabbath isn't for man. He goes, it's, or it isn't for God. It's for man. The Sabbath was created for you guys. Um, and yet here we are. And so the things he's going to bring out in this conversation with the Pharisees, if you really look at it, they're not unlike conversations we would have with people today. Solomon himself said in Ecclesiastes, actually said, there's nothing new under the sun, Right? And if you watch TV today, you realize that they're just recycling the same stories over and over and over and over again. And they get worse every time. Hence the latest trilogy of Star Wars. Um, I won't get off on that tangent, but it's, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, there's three key thoughts, though, that I really want to zero in on in this. And the first one is the things he's going to change. He's going to question their thinking. He's going to kind of change some of the things that they think. And he's going to establish some very key things out of this conversation with them. And the first is a personal God. A personal God. John chapter 5, 19 through 23. Or 19, sorry, through 23 says, So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, so the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge. 
so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the, fa- the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. So here again, he's relaying to them, listen, me and God the Father, we're on the same level. We're on the same spot. We're here. Now, why does this challenge them? Because they were worshiping a God. The religious leaders worshiped a God they had no relationship with. Right? It was a set of rules they followed. It was ritualistic. It was, you know, we have to do all of these things. It was truly just religion to them at this point, right? And you've heard us say several times in here, religion is man's attempt to get to God, right? Or if you're Karl Marx, religion is the opiate of the people, which in a lot of ways, not a Marxist, I don't believe in anything he said other than he was right when he made that statement. Religion is man's way of feeling good and trying to ease a guilty conscience, for the things that he does, right? There's a plethora of religions in the world. There are all these different things. And yet, Christianity is the only religion whose God is actually personal. Whose God wants to have a personal relationship with you. Whose God cares individually about what you're doing. Every other one is some God who's way off and far out there and really distant. And you're going, well, I've just got to do all these things and maybe this greatly removed cosmic being will consider me worthy enough. Versus Christianity, which says, you're never going to be worthy. There's actually nothing you can do to ever be worthy, but I still love you and I still want you. See, we know that the religious leaders didn't have a personal relationship with God because Jesus actually criticized their prayers and told people not to pray like they do. Matthew 6, 5 says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. And in Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee who's praying and a tax collector. And at the end, he says, listen, it was the sinner whose prayer was heard by God who went home redeemed or went home in right standing with God, not the Pharisee. Because, see, they didn't have a relationship with God. They had a set of rules they were following. They had these guidelines, and they thought as long as they stayed within the guidelines, everything else would be okay. It wasn't about having a personal relationship with God. And now Jesus changes that because God was no longer this high-out cosmic being that they were doing everything to serve. He was standing right in front of them. And to be fair, that would be a challenging thing because for, you know, for a long, long time, they had spent, they'd been living this way. And now God had had personal relationships with some people, right? Prophets spoke for God, but there was never this, everyone could be close to God. So this was challenging them. He's trying to say, listen, I'm not a far off God. I'm a personal God. I'm right here. And this was really just a restoration of the relationship that had existed in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we see that this is right after Adam and Eve have sinned. And what does it say? It says, God came in the cool of the evening to walk and talk with them. Now, this wasn't like a random occurrence. This was what God did. That's why they knew they heard God coming. And they're like, oh, we got to hide. Why? Because they knew. They were used to walking with God. They would walk and talk with him in the cool of the evening. A personal, a close-knit personal relationship with God was the plan in the beginning. And then we screwed it up, and Jesus came to fix it. So he's changing the thing. He says, listen, I'm not removed. I'm right here with you. And they could not seem to get their minds around that. And so here he is trying to explain that to them. 
the next key thought from this passage is eternal destination is a personal choice. We see in John chapter 5, starting in verse 24, he says this, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and listen to the, and those who listen will live. And the Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son, and he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all of the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son and they will rise again. And those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of him who sent me, not my own will. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, if they believed my message, if they heard it and they believed, then they will get to experience eternal life. What is that telling you? That's telling you that your eternal destination is a personal choice. It is a choice no one else can make for you. It's up to you and you alone. And choice is a big word in culture today, right? Everything is about choice, right? You can choose this. You can choose that. I choose to believe this. I choose to believe that. The only thing is, is that culture today wants all of the choice and none of the consequences that come from choice. Right? God gave you choice. Choice isn't a human construct. It's not a, it's not a liberal left construct. Choice isn't something they came up with. Free will is something God gave you. That's why he said, I set before you life and death. Choose life. Why? Because choice was something that God gave us. But... He, didn't, he said, I set before you these two choices, but each one comes with a consequence, and you can't say, well, I have the freedom to choose, so I choose the road to death, but I still want life. Which is what culture wants, right? They say, I want to make all of the choices about everything that I want to do. I want to choose sin and yet still get to God, and that's not how it works. You don't get to walk in both camps. You can't be both. You can't have it both ways. The saying that our mom would always say to us growing up, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Right? We are saved by grace through faith. Romans 10.9, I love this passage. It says, if you openly declare that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We were talking about this in, in Wednesday night and um, that's the New Living Translation. Of, of the more commonly quoted way is, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The pastor's talking about how this is the only place where in the Bible it actually says that you have to confess with your mouth. Everywhere else just refers to believing. And me and him were having a conversation about this the other day, and I said, the thing is with that statement is, if you believe in your heart, you will automatically confess with your mouth, right? You can't believe in your heart and not confess with your mouth. It's going to come out of you. That's just kind of a natural thing, right? Because <laughs> believe me, there are some things, when you get somebody really passionate about talking about something, doesn't it just kind of like ooze out of them excitedly, right? Yeah. 
you know, people get used to figure out, I don't understand how you can be around teenagers. Well, it's easy. You just ask, once you find out what they like, teenagers will talk to you for hours. You sit down with them now and talk to them about video games, they won't shut up. Sometimes you'll be like, I wish I'd never asked that question. <laughs> right? I joke about this. I, when Jennifer and I used to carpool to work years ago, I got in the car one time and I sat down and I said, how was your day? And I didn't say another word till we were pulling in our driveway because she was excited to talk to me and she told me all about her day. But when we truly believe in God, when we truly believe in Jesus with our heart, and it's, it's in here, not just here, it's possible to believe in your head and not believe in your heart. Knowledge isn't enough. Belief and faith are generated here. And when we truly believe that, it's going to come out. We're going to confess with our mouth. We're going to have a defense. As Peter says, to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. With me, this is fear. Right? Why? We're going to have a defense because it's here. We're not going to go, oh, I've got to get up and read my Bible again today. Oh, I've got to check that thing off the list, you know. Did that today. No. We're going to want to spend time with God because we love him. Because we want to be with him. And we exercise our faith by believing. Our role in this whole thing is exercising our faith in believing, right? He says, to those who believe my message, to those who believe in the God who sent me, to those who believe, I've given them eternal life. But that belief has got to be more than just belief in your head. You can't just believe, you can't just have the knowledge and be like, well, yeah, I believe that's true. It's got to change you, right? Again, you can't do the whole, I want to choose sin and still go to heaven. That doesn't work. And if you really believed his message, you would stop doing things. You would stop having certain behaviors prevalent in your life. And if, you were so, if it was something you struggled with, you would be praying constantly, God, help me. You would be going to someone else in the church. You'd be saying, I need you to be accountability in my life because I'm struggling, because this, this sin is present in my life and I can't seem to quit it on my own and I need help and help me get out of this. If we really believed, that's what we would do. If we believed here. It's not enough to simply know the message. James talks about that too. He says, listen, you believe there's one God, you do well, but even the demons believe. And then he adds this guy, he goes, they tremble at his name. Man, so many people in the church today, we don't tremble at the name of Jesus anymore. And some of us, if we were really honest, go out and use his name rather flippantly. We have to understand that our eternal destination is a personal choice. Where you spend eternity is nobody else's fault but your own. And there will be no excuse on judgment day when you stand before God. There will be no excuse, especially now because you're sitting here and you're listening to this message. There will, you have no excuse if on judgment day, God looks at you and says, depart from me, I never knew you. We'll have no excuse. Because we were here. We sat in services. We understood this. It is a personal choice. No one can make it for you. Your parents' faith will not get you into heaven. Your spouse's faith will not get you into heaven. 
You can't stand, I can't stand before God one day and say, but, but I'm the son of, of James and Julie Vitztham, and they were active in the church, and they did all of these things. And you know what? God will look at me and go, yeah, I know them. I see their names right here in my book. You, Josh, I don't know you. Because it's a personal choice. Finally, the last thing, the last kind of key thought from this was a personal relationship with God. John chapter 5, 39 through 47, he says, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe, for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? This may be and possibly be one of the most cutting remarks Jesus makes to them because he says, listen, you love the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that the Bible is going to give you eternal life. Friends, the Bible doesn't give us eternal life. True belief in Jesus gives us eternal life. And like he says, the scriptures point to me. They point, they say, look, everything in that, in the Old Testament, everything is pointed right at Jesus. See, the religious leaders trusted the law to save them. They trusted in the law. They said, listen, the law of Moses is here to save us. They believed. They trusted in the law of Moses to save them. And he's saying, you don't understand. You don't even get it. Moses believed in me. Moses wrote about me. He pointed you to me. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? Right? All of these different things, the different miracles that Moses performed, people have drawn back and said, look, this is just like Jesus. This is pointing to Jesus. This is all about Jesus. It's here. The laws, the things that we do, it's all about Jesus. And he's saying Moses would condemn you. Moses would accuse you because you missed it. You made it all about a religiosity. You made it all about things. You made it all about here's the fence and you can't go outside the fence. And as long as you stay in the fence, you'll be saved. But man, I can get right up against the fence. And we call that American Christianity. Um, okay, so. I'm not even sorry. So, you know. I've said it for a long No, it's true. We just, American Christianity is how close to sin can I get without really being in sin? At what point does that thing I'm watching, does it turn the line from not a good idea to sinful? You know. How much, is, how much is okay? If you're asking those questions, then you've missed it completely. At what point does my Thanksgiving dinner go from feasting to gluttony? Oh. I'll leave that one for food for thought for the rest of you guys. Um, all right. No, but we don't want to. Oh, people all oh, don't talk about gluttony, Josh. That one will, that one will get you thrown right out of the church. Um, 
No, but we always, we want to know just how close we can get to the line without actually coming over and, and being in sin because, oh, well, the Bible says not to do this. Yeah, but the Bible also says that if what you're doing causes somebody else to stumble or offends somebody else's conscience, that you ought to not do it. Man, you want to know how to learn to watch what you watch on TV? Have children. Man, because there's a lot of stuff I watch, and I was like, ah, this is really funny. And all of a sudden, I laugh at something, and I'll see, and my son will be standing behind me, and I'm like, you know, I'm not comfortable with him seeing this or hearing these jokes or thinking that's okay. And I'm like, now I, gotta, now I have to go back and reassess what I watch. And it's funny because I've, and you'll hear people make all kinds of justifications that, you know, for us growing up, it was us. If Jesus would sit down and watch it with you, then, you know, then that's okay. People, I've, people will justify the weird thing. I think Jesus would watch that. I'm like, really? You think that's what Jesus would? He might sit there with you, yeah. But I guarantee you, five minutes in, you'd turn it off. People, oh, but this show, it's not, it's just this. And I'm like, yeah, but you're being entertained by that. And we assume that Jesus would just sit there and be entertained along with you? I don't think so. Now, I'm not saying, like, burn your TV, smash them down, that, you know, I'm not saying live under a rock, anything like that. I believe that we are to be in the world, just not of the world, right? So, so hear that. But we are to have a personal relationship with God, and the closer we get to God, our appetites for things got to change. They would change. I know I've used this story a lot of times, but I haven't had an energy drink in over 10 years because I promised my now wife, then fiance, after I ended up in the hospital with a heart thing, that I wouldn't drink them anymore. They didn't even, I didn't even have an energy drink the day I had this. It wasn't what caused it, but she was, knew that I drank them a lot. And she's like, will you please not do that? And because I love my wife, I don't do that. That doesn't mean there aren't days I still want one. Yeah. I, I was one of the weird people. I liked the taste of them. But I can say no because I love my wife right? Well, the closer we get to God, the deeper our love with God gets, the more we grow in a relationship with him. We say no to things because we know it wouldn't make God happy. Because we know that God in his word said that's not something we should do. But we get way too into the whole, the scripture of where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Oh, hey, yeah, if I sin, it's okay. God still loves me. Yeah, we forget the next part, but should we go on sinning so the grace continue abound? Certainly not, Right? And this isn't a new line of thinking. We didn't come up with that in America. Paul wrote that whole thing to people because they were already doing it. He's saying, listen, there are some of you who think, I can just go on continuing to sin because look at how great it makes God's love and, and, and forgiveness look if, and grace look if I keep sinning all the time. Paul's like, think of, <laughs> Paul's pretty much, this is a, a, an incredible paraphrase going, think of the witness that you're setting right now. I mean, really. You look no different than them. Why should they have to come do this? We need to have a personal relationship with God. And like I said, the religious leaders trusted in the law. They trusted the law of Moses. But they didn't even understand that the man who wrote the law of Moses, Moses himself, had a personal relationship with God. Read the book of Exodus. Moses spent 40 days alone on top of Mount Sinai with God. That's pretty personal. Moses, from my recollection right now, the only person to see God the Father's back. Right? God said, I'm going to cover you with my hand and you'll be, I'll let you see the backside of me because if you looked at my face, you would die. 
But if you also read in Exodus chapter 33, they had this really cool thing called the tent of meeting. And Moses would go into the tent of meeting, which if you're a little slower on the uptake, was where they went to meet with God. That's why it was called the tent of meeting. But he would take the people's requests and he would go in before God and he would spend time with God every, like, I don't know if it was daily or how often it was, but he would go in there frequently and spend time with God, bringing the people's requests for him. And he spent so much time with God, he had to put a veil on when he came out because his face was shining. He said he would take the veil off when he went in, but he had to put the veil on every time he came out. Because why? He had a personal relationship with God. So here are these religious leaders, these Pharisees, right, who have trusted in the law of Moses to protect them, not realizing that the man who wrote the law had a personal relationship with Jesus, had a personal relationship with God. He spent time with him all the time. And if you read about the tent of meeting, every, because Moses was the leader, because he had things to do, he would leave and it said that his assistant, Joshua, would stay behind in the tent of meeting. This isn't a part of my sermon notes. This is something else I can talk to you guys about later. This one's for free. Um, I think that's a huge reason why Joshua was chosen to lead the Israelites afterwards. Just saying. Okay. Um, it's a leadership principle. We'll talk about it later. Um, come, you can message me on Facebook, catch me in the lobby afterwards, whatever. I'll talk to you about it. Um, but... Uh, they missed it, and he's trying to call them back to it. He's trying to say, you don't, you don't get it. It's about having a personal relationship with me. I'm a personal God. This is not some grand religion with all of these steps and, and 15 ways to, to get to God and all of this stuff. He says, no. We know later in John, he'll say, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. This is a personal thing. I'm the way. Get to know me. Have a relationship with me. I'm begging you. And friends, I think he would say the same thing to the church today. Please, I am begging you. Have a personal relationship with me. It's not about whether you come here and sing songs. It's not about the way that we meet or the form that it takes or anything like that. Listen, it is about having a personal relationship with me. It doesn't matter if your church gets everything right. Because again, your eternal destination is a personal choice. It doesn't matter if the staff of abundant life get everything right or not. You going to heaven or not doesn't rest on us. Thank God. That's a burden I don't want to carry. That's a burden you're going to carry. That's totally on you. The last thing I want to do is this. Jesus' conversation with the religious leaders is actually one of grace. He wants nothing more than for them to come to repentance and turn to him. So many times we take this, we look at Pharisees and we take a really harsh perspective and we're like, they were wrong. Yes, they were. He dealt with them most harshly. Yes, but he was trying to make them think. These were intellectual men. He was trying to cause them to think. He's saying Moses would accuse you so they would go back and see these things. Because if we believe the Bible, which we should, we know that John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world. Okay, so the world, that would encompass everyone that he gave his one and only son. Jesus came as much for those Pharisees and religious leaders as he did for you and I. He cared as much for them as he did for you and I. And he desperately wants them to turn around and to fix it. And you know what? In the church, we're really good at seeing people who are Pharisees. We're like, oh, they're just being a Pharisee. Look at them. Or we're really good about judging people because of things that they've done and saying, well, I don't know if I want to tell them about Jesus. 
It's not up to you. It's God's will that none should perish. He wanted them to come to know him. He wanted them to get it right. That's why when one of them came with a real question, he sat down and had a conversation through most of the night with him. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And when Nicodemus came with not just accusational things, but asking real questions, Jesus had a conversation with him. Why? Because he cared as much about the Pharisees as he did about the woman caught in the act of adultery. And thank you, Jesus, for that. Because for some of us who grew up in church, avoiding a lot of the really big bad sins, I'm glad that he cared as much about the Pharisee as he did about the person who's got a real testimony. And I think the reason he stresses so much the personal relationship with God and some of these, the real personal things is because, listen, those people who we say have a real testimony, right? They have a lot of things. They get this thing and they get all on fire and they're like, oh, Jesus, you've saved me so much. Thank you so much. And, and they, they, just, they just catch on fire and it's a wonderful thing to watch. People who grew up in church, sometimes this just gets kind of routine. We know when to raise our hands. We know when to say amen. We know when to clap. We can tell you when someone's off, you know. We have arguments over which worship band is better, who's more anointed. I mean, like, we just have ridiculous conversations sometimes. But we can get so comfortable in our Christianity that we, that we miss it. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and come back up. We can become so comfortable in our religion that we forget to have a relationship. And we're not alone. David wrote Psalms saying, God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Right? God, bring me back. Bring me back to that moment. Bring me back. Let me experience that one more time because I've gotten so caught up in the day-to-day portion of this. I've gotten so just, it just became normal to me because I see it all the time. And I don't want to be that way. God, I want to be in love with you again. I want to feel your presence one more time. God, anything, please just restore, bring that joy back to me. 